Hello. How's it going? Mayor Grunberg here, the shorter of the two tall Jews, Jewish history guy on Instagram. It's nice to be back. It has been, I mean, it, we usually do every other week, so it's not like uh, you haven't heard my voice in a little bit. We were a day late due to some technical difficulties, but we're back with an awesome new episode and new season. Yes, indeed. This is the first episode of season two of the Two Tall Jews Show. Thank you so much for tuning in and following season one. You can find all of our episodes here, wherever you're listening. You can find some clips and full episodes on YouTube so you can see what we look like. You can follow us on Instagram at Two Tall Jews. And of course, you can follow our main account on this day in Jewish history from whence all of our inspiration and information comes from. This week's episode... The premiere of season two is an awesome interview with Brooke Goldstein, lawyer from the Lawfare Project, the founder of the End Jew Hatred Movement, grassroots movement that is dedicated to creating consequences for Jewish hatred, as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, last couple of years, really, the spike in anti-Semitic attacks, anti-Jewish hateful Judenhass attacks are rampant. They are in the open, broad daylight, and Brooke Goldstein is at the front lines of the fight against it. So we think that you will really, you know, take away some things from this episode that we can that can be actionable in your communities and your in your circles. Please make sure to follow them, uh, Lawfare Project, and at and Jew Hatred on Instagram and all social media platforms. You can follow Brooke on Twitter as well. We hope you enjoy this show. Please, as always, leave us a review. Let us know how we did. If you're on Apple, follow us on Spotify. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and check out our merch store if you want to support this podcast and on this dangerous history. We really, really appreciate it when you buy one of our merch items. And with that, enjoy the show. Now is the time for the Jewish community to mobilize in a grassroots way, the way every other minority community does, and demand consequences for Jew hatred. Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by the On This Day in Jewish History Instagram page, brought to you by jewishoriginal.com and presented by Best Shop Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshopproduction.com and get a quote on your next video project today. We are the Two Tall Jews, and we are ready to go. On today's show, we are very happy to have Brooke Goldstein on. Brooke is a lawyer, an author, and a human rights activist. Born and raised in Toronto, Brooke received her undergraduate degree from McGill and her law degree from Cardozo. In 2006, while in law school, Brooke traveled to the West Bank to make the film The Making of a Martyr, co-directed with Alistair Leyland. The film shines a light on the troubling epidemic of Palestinian children forced to live in the life of jihad with bombs strapped to their bodies as they make a plea for the Israeli border. In 2010, Brooke founded the Lawfare Project, a nonprofit legal organization, Think Tank, for which she serves as executive director, dedicated to the protection of Jewish and Zionist communities all over the world. As a litigation fund, the Lawfare Project provides financial backing to protect free speech and civil rights by applying challenges to discrimination and anti-Semitism experienced by Jews. In 2011, Brooke co-authored the book Lawfare, The War Against Free Speech, a First Amendment guide for reporting in an age of Islamist lawfare, which serves as a guide for journalists to combat the weaponization of the law 
in an effort to silence writers who speak out against an Islamist militancy. A driven legal, legal scholar whose grandfather battled the Nazis as a Polish partisan against the tyranny of Hitler's Europe, Britt Goldstein has dedicated her life to helping oppressed Jews everywhere, giving voice to the forgotten. Whether it's aiding in the humanity of Palestinian teenagers or fighting the, dis the discriminatory label of Israeli products in France, Brooke is on the front lines. Whether it's in the courtroom, in print, or on screen, railing against the world of Jewish hatred one case at a time. Brooke Goldstein, welcome to the show. Very happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yes. So we're going to come out to the chase with obviously what's happening right now. We, we hope to release this in this coming week. So it's going to be very relevant. Um, obviously the, the, the conflict in Israel, thank God there's, you know, we're amidst the ceasefire as, as, as of this recording, but uh, we've seen an inordinate amount of violent antisemitism um, in, in the streets of, of many cities like Toronto, New York, and LA. And, and online, it's been insane. Uh, the numbers, you know, I can't get into it now. We can't get into it, but some of the things that are being shared online is um, really shocking, to say the least, as shocking as it can be. So, um, obviously, you know, people that uh, are not fans of Jews don't need a conflict in Israel to as a, as a sort of a reason to beat up Jews in the diaspora. But what would you attribute this latest round of blatant out in the open, out in the broad daylight, uh, you know, all these attacks and, and, and what yeah. can we do? What can we tell the Jewish community in these places yeah. at this time? So you're absolutely right that there's, you know, they don't need an excuse, but what they have right now is the perfect excuse and the perfect, you know, storm with the mainstream media and influence influencers spreading lies to feed all this type of incitement and it's incitement gone crazy on steroids because of the social media um, and it's amazing to me because the point that I think a lot of non-Jews don't get is they're so lost in debating a conflict in the Middle East that they can't see blatant racism discrimination and like violent attacks against Jews for the fact that we're Jews as something other than well this is political Right. And I, and I hate that, especially as a civil rights attorney, because there's it's not a defense to discriminate against someone. The students that I represent, for example, they're spat on in school. Sometimes they're punched in the face. They're discriminated against and singled out by the professors. And the excuse is, well, we're not anti-Jewish. We're just anti-Israel. So we're allowed to discriminate against you because you're Jewish and Jews are getting beaten up because of a conflict in the Middle East. That's a grotesque conclusion to make that justifies racism. Right. So how can, what would sort of like, obviously things seem dark. Um, you know, I always try to focus on how, how can we bring the light? How can we sort of inspire people um, to what, what can we tell people right now as, as a way to, to combat these things, either, I guess, legally or um, more like underground, um, you know, inspiration in a way. So people don't feel like, you know, the end of the world so obviously at times of great despair which it is i think i'm not going to mince words it was also great opportunity um we have been witnessing over the last five to ten years the rise of minority rights movements in the west and 
And now is the time for the Jewish community to mobilize in a grassroots way, the way every other minority community does, and demand consequences for Jew hatred. We are part, for example, one of, I think it's about 18 or 19 organizations now with chapters all over the world of a movement called End Jew Hatred, which demands consequences for discrimination against Jewish people. And we have been mobilizing on the street. There have been protests all over the world. You know, it really started with ending Jew hatred on campus and now has morphed into the issue of direct violent targeting from Sarah Halimi in Paris, you know, to the rocket attacks against Jews for being Jews living in Israel. Um, a movement uh, has come up. And I think what's so important is for the community to, to unite to shed the partisan politics divides. This politician is a Nazi. No, that politician, you know, supports Kristallnacht. The use of Holocaust terminology that denigrates our unique history to describe partisan politics and put a wedge between us. Oh, how can Jews vote Democrat? How can Jews vote Republican? You know, you're an Upper East Side Reform Jew. You're an Orthodox Jew. Everybody wants to divide us. We have to unite on the basic principle that we are a minority community in the diaspora and we deserve equal protection under the law like every other minority community and demand and, and double standard. And we can do that. And we are powerful when we are united and when we mobilize. We don't need anyone's permission to get out on the street. We are weak when we are divided and when we have the mentality of, you know, shut still, don't do anything, don't don't speak up, don't, don't make noise, it'll just blow over. I think history, this is a blog about history, right? You know, has shown us the opposite. It has shown us if we don't cut off the incitement and cut it off at, at the head, then it will lead to much darker things. Right. So you mentioned Jew hate, the end Jew hatred movement, the end Jew hatred movement. Um, how, how can people get more involved? Where, where, can, where can they find ways to get involved? Uh, right now, if they wanted to. They have to go to NJewHatred.com and they need to mobilize. And the thing about the Andrew Hatred movement, I just want to say, um, it's not a 501c3 organization, okay? It doesn't have a structure with the board. It's an idea. It's a movement. Just like the notion of Black Lives Mattering, okay? Just like the notion that you want to end Asian hatred. Those who are against the notion that you need to end Jew hatred are racist on their face, okay? And when you mobilize, if you go to njuhatred.com, you'll see that you will be provided with a strategic financial and legal support to mobilize in your own community. There's no issue that's too small. Just like you're walking down the street and you see a coffee shop advertising to end Asian hate, come with your sign, your printed sign of njuhatred and say, listen, I'm a minority too. Please put up this sign. As you know, there's been a rise in hate crimes. Show your support for our community. And if not, why not? And demand answers and assert yourself. Mm -hmm. Following uh, the film you made, the make, uh, the film you made, what did you, you were still in law school at the time. Is that correct? Correct. So, what did you do immediately after law school and what inspired you to start the Lawfare Project a couple years later? So I made the film, The Making of a Martyr, which uh, won the audience choice for best documentary film at the 2006 United Nations Documentary Film Festival. And because it actually surprisingly did well, it's 
spoke truth um, and shed light on an issue that nobody was talking about, which is the abuse of innocent Muslim children at the hands of radical Islamic jihadists who are recruiting them for suicide, homicide attacks to be, you know, human shields. We're seeing the same phenomenon right now with children being used as human shields in Gaza. And yet Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Coalition to Stop the Use of Child Soldiers, these groups are so corrupt that they will not condemn the murder of Muslim children as long as it's at the hands of their own community. That's how sick it is. So after this uh, movie premiered, I traveled the world to different film festivals with my co-producer, Alistair Leyland, and started speaking publicly about this issue of faith-based, uh, faith-motivated terrorism, Islamist terrorism. And everyone who was doing what I was doing, which was going on television or writing articles about the problem of Islamist terrorism, started finding themselves slandered as Islamophobes or sued for libel. And the irony is having made a film about the abuse of Muslim children, to, to say that my film is Islamophobic, that's like saying that risking your life to, to try and save Muslim children's lives is anti-Muslim. If that's anti-Muslim, what's pro-Muslim, right? So after, uh, so I noticed everybody's to make a long story short, I noticed that a lot of people were doing it. What I was doing started getting sued. I was a lawyer. So I, I first worked for a litigation defense fund run by the Middle East Forum, a man named Daniel Pipes, where we raised money and helped with the legal defense of moderate Muslims and members of the counterterrorism community who were speaking publicly about these national security threats. And then after that, I founded the first and only, I think till this day, Jewish Civil Rights Litigation Fund, where we offensively represent Jewish communities around the world in courts around the world who are discriminated against. Because that's the real way to win. You know, in, in a civilized society, you don't riot. You don't kill people to get what you want. You don't use violence. Um, what you do is you use the court system. And look at our beautiful... Um, uh, ecosystem of human and civil rights in America. They, they were through seminal court decisions, Roe v. Wade, right? Brown v. Board of Education, desegregation. Where are the Jewish seminal civil rights cases to establish our rights as a minority community? And this is what I'm I'll end with this about unity and partisanship. When President Trump declared, made an executive order that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, should apply to protect Jewish students on campus, the entire so-called left-wing Democrat arm of the Jewish community were against it because of partisan politics. Could yeah. you imagine the NAACP or the Black community saying, no, thank you, don't write Jew into, into the Civil Rights Act? We don't like the president who wrote that. That's insane. The partisan politics that divides us is insane. Um, so we need to unify the basic notion that we deserve equal protection under the law. Really? That's crazy. Yeah, I remember that. Can you guys still hear me? I don't know. One yeah. of these headphones stopped working. Okay, that's fine. Um, so obviously, as you're painting it, and as we know, and most of our listeners probably know that fighting anti-Semitism seems like a never-ending struggle. Sometimes it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, as Debbie Lefkin, this girl, Roots Medals, once said that, I'm sure you've dealt with this a lot, where it's like, 
you see it, you fight it, and then when you actually win, you shut it down. They're like, oh, look, there are the Jews again, shutting things down, controlling things. So uh, even when you succeed, it seems like you don't. So um, how does the Lawfare Project uh, sort of prioritize which issues to tackle first when it comes to anti-Semitism, if it's online or on campus, in the workplace? What, what would be top of the list? Uh, how would you work your way down on that? So first of all, just to the earlier point that you said in terms of, you know, if you look at history of the world, um, yeah, the, the, the Jew hatred ebbs and flows. And, it, you know, I love Dennis Prager's definition of Jew hatred. I cannot quote it very well. I shouldn't memorize it, but it's something like, you know, they hate us when we're rich. You know, we're, we're thieves and when we're poor, you know, we're dirty, full of disease. You know, when we're, you know, if we're white, we're colonialists, you know, when we're not white, we're shoved into the oven. So there's nothing we can do, you know, that, that makes a Jew hater love a Jew. It's just a, a disgusting disease of humanity. Um, and it seems like the more the Jew is humane, when we have a state, the IDF is the most humane army that's ever existed on the planet. And we give a notice to a building that terrorists are in. And they're using civilians and shields. It's like, terrorists, get out of the building. Civilians get, and we bomb a building because we have to because it's shooting rockets at our children. And we don't kill one civilian. They hate us even more. Mm-hmm. You know, because how could we be so humane? If there was rocket shooting in any other country in the world, they would smash the shit out of yeah. it. Okay. And so even and when we adhere to mitzvot, we're different. So the most important thing to do and and the school that I come from, and I have no solution for Jew hatred, but what I do know is there has to be consequences that we are commanded to pursue justice and we are fortunate that we live in a time and a place where we can avail ourselves of a court system that is just and a rule of law and we must maintain the rule of law the important thing though however is we cannot be abused by it we cannot be forced to sit before an international criminal court with no due process whatsoever that's shown itself not to be an objective party okay and to to cede our sovereign rights you have no no need or, or responsibility or duty to do that but what we can do is use the court system to, to the full extent of our abilities and the way that we prioritize frankly is basically if a case has the, the most public interest we are public interest firm so to speak in the sense that the case that we take on there has to be more than just an interest of a a plaintiff was wronged. It has to be um, evidence of a more systemic problem, that a systemic Jew hatred that we can solve, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's being expressed by the so-called BDS movement, and we can make a precedent against it. That's how we choose our cases. What would most be the public benefit? And the beauty about public interest litigation, which is what we do, which is the ACLU does, which is a long history of in our country, is that whatever precedent you set for one minority community holds for others. That's the beauty of the law. So all minority mm-hmm. communities benefit from proper civil rights litigation. And that's really why I feel so blessed to, to be able to live and practice in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm currently in Israel right now. I was going to ask. Yeah. Okay. You are... Uh, 
you brought up BDS, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. How does Lawfare balance its work combating BDS on college campuses with the rise of other forms of anti-Semitism all over the world? So it's, it's interesting because there are so many different types of anti-Semitism that not only exist today, but also throughout history. And that's something more for like a historian. And I guess you guys are much more well-versed in that than I am probably. But when it comes to being a lawyer, it's all the same. It's all the same. You know, I did a, a webinar and the question was, what is Jew hatred? And the answer is basically, you know, when you see it, it's when a Jew is treated differently because they are a Jew. And I don't care how you cut it, whether it's in the commercial place, we're saying I'm treating Israeli products made by Jews living in occupied territories different than I'm going to treat other products made by other people with the same standards, right? Or you're a Jew on campus, I'm going to treat you differently because you're a Jew. And that is called discrimination, unlawful, illegal discrimination that we have civil rights laws against in this country. That's what's so great about about this country. I can't have a restaurant and say no blacks allowed. I can't go to a Chinese person and say, hey, I have a problem with, you know, the Chinese government handling of COVID. So I'm going to discriminate against you because you're Chinese. You can't, I'm not going to do business with you because of where you were born. That's racist. So when that happens to Jews, the role of the civil rights lawyer is to put it in context of discrimination and not allow the person who's engaging in discrimination to use an excuse like, well, I have a problem with Israel-Palestine conflict happening 5,000 miles away. Therefore, I'm justified in throwing eggs at your synagogue. No, that's called vandalism with a hate crime motive. Or I'm justified in attacking you on the subway because you're speaking Hebrew and that's triggering to me. That's what happened to our client, Lihia Haron. She's a model. She was attacked on the subway, okay, by a woman who was black. And she attacked her and scratched her face. And initially the DA refused to prosecute as a hate crime because they were afraid it would be politically incorrect. This is a double standard that we have to, and we must fight against. Yeah, I just saw um, last week as we was recording, uh, the, the, Jew, the Persian Jews that were attacked outside the LA restaurant uh, by the Palestinian mob and um, saved by a Christian Arab friend of theirs. Um, let's say we'll defend it. And um, I, I know that that was in Ted Lieu's district, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu. And he was like, basically like forced to come out with a statement. And then even when he came out with a statement, it was like, he almost justified it saying like, it's too politically sensitive to- Jews to need to show yeah. up every day in front of his office and demand consequences and not let up. Okay? Mm -hmm. We don't have a gun to our heads. There's nothing to be afraid of. No one's going to do it but us. We must mobilize. And if you want the help to mobilize, we will help you at the End Jew Hatred Movement. So, sort of pardon my, my ignorance, uh, but since graduating college, I have not come into contact or really seen BDS manifest out in the professional world. Uh, is there something to be said for this, or do I only just feel this way because I'm not in those same collegiate? The Lawford Project is doing a really good job, Isaac. That's what? The Lawford Project is doing a really good job. That's why you don't see it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I think I think you're you're right because it's a it's this fringe 
movement that we've amplified. You know, if you go to Broadway and you pull a hundred people and say, do you know what the BDS movement is? They probably do. <laughs> what? And like, we go around BDS, BDS, and we're repeating this acronym. First of all, it's called unlawful commercial discrimination. And if you went up to someone on Broadway, say, do you support businesses discriminating against people because of the color of their skin or where they're born? They'd probably say no. So they'd be anti-BDS. But when we frame it as this like, well, there's a conflict. On one side, there's Israel. On the other side, there's the Palestinians. And they want to boycott. It's like, that's not yeah, what this is. This is targeting someone in a business context saying, I won't do business with you because you're a Jew or you're illegal because you can't live in Judea, but Muslims and Christians can't. But the Jew is illegal. So I'm going to treat that Jewish product, that wine or the dates right. or the figs, whatever, differently. That's called racism. Um, so that's how we need to talk about it. And I think everybody's pretty woke about that by now. Um, but yeah, you don't see it because we defeat it. That's a good tagline. Yeah. Um, the, the most, I'm not going to say it's the best argument, but to pay devil's advocate, what they'll, what they'll say is um, everything else that hasn't worked right the the violent means haven't worked so so uh this this non-violent mean means should work but it's like no but you only you end up affecting negatively palestinians right you just you so division what? in the diaspora is, uh, but that's so so that's a non-violent tactic that um there is a strategy to manipulate human rights language and appear as though they are or there is a party that is a victim and there's an oppressor and the Jews are the oppressor and it's black and white. Um, it's so interesting. I was talking to my sister. Um, she really put it in context, historically speaking. Okay. If the Palestinian Arabs and basically I, I'm a Palestinian. Okay. Palestine is a national, is a geographical location. It's not an ethnicity. It's not a culture. It's not a religion. Jews prior to the establishment of Israel called themselves Palestinian. All right, if the Jerusalem Post was the Palestine Post and so forth. So to appropriate that identity, number one, I think is racist and bigoted and denies the Jewish history. But number two, when those fake lines were all drawn in the Middle East, okay, by the mandate system, it was the British colonial powers, the French colonial powers taking over after the Ottoman colonial powers, all suppressing the indigenous people who were there, both Muslims and Jews. And Jews asked, can we have this piece? And they said, yes. And all the Muslims asked, can we have all the other pieces? And they said, yes. And we worked really damn hard to make our little piece beautiful. Okay. And the Palestinian Muslims worked really hard to live under a terrorist state till this day. Why is it Israel's responsibility? Why is it the Jews' responsibility to fix that? You got a problem? Take it up with the British. Take it up with the Americans. Take it up with Turkey, take it up with Jordan, take about all the surrounding Arab states that are funding this conflict and creating it. Don't rely on Jews to solve your problems. And then you complain about it. You lob rockets at us, you lob rockets at our children, and then you complain that we're not giving you enough water for free and you don't want to pay us for it. Why, why are you relying on the Jewish state? Why is everybody blaming Israel to solve a problem that Israel did not create and that we have no responsibility for? And it's just this whole cycle, this narrative, frankly, is sickening and it disempowers the Muslim people and creates a situation where they will forever be reliant on part 
parties that are harming them, parties that are funding Hamas and Islamic Jihad, who are recruiting their children for suicide homicide attacks. This is not the Jews' fault. Stop blaming the Jew all the time and requiring Israel to fix this problem. Yeah. Yep. To add to that, and I think to the Dennis Prager quote, it's from Barry Weiss that she says that uh, number one, anti-Semitism is a disease and it'll take the form of the worst thing that society is looking at at the time. So that's why it's unfortunately so successful as a, as a hate because um, it has the ability to literally form into whatever you want it to be. So um, one, of, one of the things that, you know, we've, we've touched on it throughout this conversation and I know it's on everybody's minds, especially our listeners, is the, the social media uh, fake activism or, the, or the, these influencers with more, with more followers than there are Jews in the world <laughs> um, sharing uh, insane, inflammatory, demonizing misinformation. Um, a lot of people have reached out to me personally, or they've reached out to the Instagram account, uh, saying like, Oh, look at what my friend said. Look at what my coworker said right in these last couple of weeks. Uh, how do I, what do I do about this? What do I say? I'm like, I'm at a loss. So many people have like lost friends over the last couple of weeks, like over, over some of the things that have been shared. Um, what is your approach to, I don't know if you're a person on social media, but what, what would be the NGO hatred or the Lawfare Project approach to combating uh, misinformation and hate on social media? So first of all, I want to like acknowledge how much trauma and pain there is right now with, even I feel in, I'm 40 years old and I'm certainly not any type of social media guru, just going through my feeds and seeing all the lies and all mm -hmm. the delegitimization and even the justification of rockets literally targeting me and my children. Okay. It's the scariest six days of my life is what we just went through. And then opening up and seeing friends that I've known forever, like spread these memes that are just so full of lies and false. And, and I, I just want to acknowledge how, how much pain there is. I don't have the solution to it other than what my instinct says that we have to stop being defensive. Okay. There are accusations being leveled at us all the time. Our role is not to, well, I'm not a child killer. I'm not an apartheid state. Yeah. I'm not an occupier. It's to be offensive, to have Jewish pride and to demand consequences when you see that Jews are being treated differently. Um, the other thing is there has to be unity. But so many people are saying, well, where's Gal Gadot? Where's Chuck Schumer? Where are all these major influencers? They're afraid. They're afraid. But if we all stood together and unified against this, I think that we should all, you know, there's strength in numbers, okay? And someone has got to be a leader. And I'm trying my hardest to lead in the space, but I'm certainly not an influencer. I am connected now with an, a, an influencer group, and I would encourage anyone who is out there to contact me to be a part of the group where we're trying to amplify each other's work. But this is your responsibility. You are that generation. You got to come up with some sort of strategy to counter what's happening on social media. My job is to make sure that social media treats you fairly. And what I'm seeing right now is really an alarming amount of, of discrimination against Jewish people on social media with Facebook or Instagram or whatever, shutting down Jewish voices and allowing incitement to violence. That is what scares me the most. Yeah. So the, 
the point you recently mentioned about Palestinian identity was discussed in our recent episode on the first day of the barrage of rockets fired by Hamas towards Israel last week. Uh, the point was raised that if we want to be intellectually honest, Palestinian Arabs as an identity group did not exist before 1948. It formed around, you know, in the 1960s as a response to Zionism at best. Um, you yourself have said in the past, quote, there's no such thing as a Palestinian person, end quote. So I guess my question is twofold. Given the current situation, is there a value in retaining that intellectual honesty? And sec secondly, can this be talked about in tandem with the Palestinian identity that has formed and evolved over the last 70 years? So first of all, that quote is taken out of context, there's no such thing as a Palestinian person that's exclusively Muslim, okay? There is a Palestinian identity, as I mentioned earlier, that is a geographic location that was assigned to people regardless of their religion, including to Jews and Christians. And if you were a Buddhist living in the area, you would have had Palestine on your passport and you would be identified for purposes of Westphalian nation state building and so forth as Palestinian, okay? That was that quote. Now, is there a value to truth? It is the safest ground to stand upon, my friend. And if I'm hearing from you that there's no value to truth anymore, then I might as well just, I mean, that, the end <laughs> is there, okay? So the, the bottom line, um, what was the last part of your question? I'm sorry. You, so you so given, what's, given what's going on for decades, but especially oh, the identity, given the actual right. nature of the conversation we're having right, right now is... You know, if we're starting the conversation from the point of, you know, defining the Palestinians as a people beginning in 48. So, I, the, yeah, so the question is, you know, the vet, can we both have that conversation and talk about the very legitimate identity that has been formed over the past 70 years when talking about the livelihood of Palestinians in the region? As long as it does not negate my identity as well, historically, as both an indigenous Jew from Judea, as long as it doesn't negate my identity as both an indigenous Jew from Judea, as well as someone who is Palestinian. Um, so basically, I talked earlier in this podcast, I think that's what it's called, right? About yes. Holocaust appropriation. There's been no greater appropriation of the Jewish collective identity than that of the Palestinian national identity as it's defined as exclusively Muslim. So for example, there was an indigenous people who had a plot of land with an olive tree and a view of the ocean. A foreign colonial empire came in, committed genocide on our people okay, occupied the land, created ghettos, created concentration camps, mm. uh, expelled us from our land. Then finally, the UN recognized our right to a state, and yet still to this day, we do not have a complete state with recognition. Whose story is that? That's my story. That's the story right. of the Jewish people who are subjected to apartheid, colonialism, genocide, put in ghettos, who were recognized by the League of Nations, the World War I powers, that we had a state that included even Transjordan. And to this day, the world refuses to recognize not only the state of Israel and its borders, which are ancient borders, which are not even the borders that were drawn in the Westphalian system, okay? The only borders in the Middle East that have any type of historical context are the borders of Israel as they were originally drawn 
with the, with the mandate system and what we are legally entitled to as well from the San Remo Accords, the Anglo-American Treaty to the adoption by U.S. Congress as treaty law. All of the deeds of land say that the Jewish people inhabit as a sovereign state the right to govern themselves within all of Israel. And yet that right continues to be derogated. Never before in human history has there been a victor in a conflict that, that has then relinquished voluntarily land that it has captured, except for the Jewish state. And yet they still hate us for this. So what's the answer? Unity and strength. Unity, strength, and pride. That is the answer. And mitzvot. Yeah, it's part of it. I love that. As, yeah. as a part of a recurring conversation here on the Two Tall Jew Show, we would like to discuss the word anti-Semitism. And from a historical perspective, anyone that, is, that knows the word's origins is aware of its very strong anti-Jewish intention. So what's your opinion on shifting the word to describe Jewish hatred away from anti-Semitism to something less anti-Semitic, like Jew hatred, Judeophobia, or anti-Jewish racism? Well, as you can yeah, see, I'm part of a movement called NJewHatred.com. I think the mission is very obvious in the name. Absolutely. Um, and if you are against ending Jew hatred, you are a bigot through and through. There is no debate whatsoever about it. Right. We we have we started so we started the podcast in July of 2020, and we've had we I think we've asked this question to almost every guest. We're going to make a clip now because it's become more relevant, and it's crazy how ever since July of 2020, especially with like Clubhouse and then Twitter, with just Twitter's just the worst. But like the amount of times I've heard like I can't be an anti semite because I'm a semite, and it's like you just outed yourself like like as being intellectually dishonest a historical like the it's it's describing a language group yeah. not a people so so interesting you say that i'm so new to clubhouse and i joined this clubhouse room um that was frankly just barf inducing um <laughs> I, I have to be honest it was just sickening oh, yeah, um and the the host was literally said in the same sentence i'm all for coexistence but jews do not have the right to live in judea it's muslim only so i'm like is everyone is listening to what this asshole is saying can you imagine saying i'm sorry no blacks allowed here whites only well, they're saying they're saying but it's like, it doesn't resonate in the room because they're all yeah. so woke and up their own tuchuses. Wait, wait, I, they can't, you know, smell it when they see it. Yeah, to, to um, I, I, I want to reemphasize what Mayor just said in the middle of your comment. Did they use the word Judea when talking? Did they like use that? I did. Oh, okay, but yeah. still. And he, if my day. memory serves me correctly, he said. Jews can't live. I go, Jews can't live in Judea? And he's like, no, Jews are not allowed. <laughs> I don't think he repeated the word, because that's settler colonialism. So, yeah. okay, no. when's the last time you've been to the so-called West Bank? The place is barren. It's miles and miles. It's the unoccupied yeah. territory. Okay, yeah. and if a Muslim wants to live anywhere, they are free to do it. If a Jew wants to live anywhere, the Israeli government will come and, and tear down their house or an NGO funded yeah. by the European powers that just massacred us, you know, over 70 years ago, 
are funding all these lawsuits to take down illegal Jews from their mountaintops. When if you're a Muslim or a Bedouin or a Christian, you're allowed to live there and you live there, you don't pay taxes. And then you demand water and you demand roads and you basically conquer it. It's, it's a mountain by mountain game right now there. It's very real on the ground. And that's also why I think it's really important to get out of the politics and realize that our Jewish brothers and sisters are literally risking everything. They're risking their safety they're risking all of their uh, finances to, and giving up everything to go live on the same mountain where King David as a little boy, okay? You can sleep in the same caves. You can see the fires from the Bar Kokhba period. You can go and walk where the Maccabees walk. You can crawl into a Maccabee cave and sit on the bench that is still there that they coughed and sit right there and meditate where they were planning their attacks against the Romans. To anyone to tell me a Jew that a Jew is not from Judea. What they're trying to do is separate us from our own history. I have this experience where I grew up in the diaspora. I know what it feels like a to be a minority, not to include, be included. It feels bad to be discriminated against. It feels ashamed. And when I come here and I'm walking on a land that I have a connection to for thousands of years, I feel powerful. I feel pride as a Jew. And that's what they don't want us to fear to feel. Everyone who says that Jews can't live there want to disconnect us from our history, want to make us weak, want to keep us in the diaspora in a state of bondage. And what we want to do with NGO hatred is call for Jewish liberation from the old way of thinking, from the old way of organizing, and Jewish liberation from all forms of discrimination. And again, this can only be achieved through unity and through grassroots mobilization to ensure consequences for Jew hatred, consequences. If you had a gigantic billboard that billions of people could see, uh, you could put it anywhere, uh, what would the billboard say and why? Right now, it would be a billboard of Sarah Halimi's face in Paris, anywhere super prominent, because what happened to that woman cannot be forgotten. Her face cannot be forgotten. This is a, a woman, a school teacher, who was beaten to death in her apartment, who had over 100 broken bones on her face and was thrown out of the window. At the whole time, there were over 20 French police officers outside her door. They heard her screaming and they did not go in. And she was beaten to death by a Muslim man who claimed that her presence, her Jewish presence, that her mezuzah on the on the wall was a provocation and the court agreed the french court agreed that innocent woman's face should be hung all over paris and they should never forget they should be ashamed of themselves and there should be consequences there and that and he was um that he was high he used that as an excuse that he was high on weed correct right that yeah. smoking marijuana is an excuse to murder a jew the legal precedent to that is absolutely insane. I'm actually told that there are people who have been gone and smoked marijuana and are committing crimes trying to use that defense now. I mean, this is an example of how society commits suicide. If you want to see historically whether society is healthy or not, look at the level of Jew hatred in that society. France, clearly very unhealthy society right now. It's bad. It's been getting worse and worse. <clears throat> so 
hope for the best, especially in France and New York, LA, Toronto, Israel, South Africa, Australia, wherever wherever there are Jewish communities um, at risk. We pray for you. We're supporting you. We heed the call of unity, and uh, and hopefully, hopefully, we won't we'll be talking about more positive things next time we have you on. And wherever there's Thank a you. Jewish community, they should establish a chapter of end Jew hatred, and we will support them financially, legally, strategically, or otherwise, so they can mobilize in their own best interest. I think the time is now to take advantage of this. We don't have to rely on our federations or you know big box organizations anymore. You can do it. An individual person whether they're an activist online or you have a group of five people, can impose consequences. Think, for example, of what the animal rights movement did, two people on a can of red paint. It is possible mm. to impose consequences in a lawful manner um, and change the direction society is going. Do not lose faith. Well, amen to that. Thank you, Brooke. And we look forward to having you back on. Thanks for having me.